FBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. All right, so this is sort of your follow-up for the main episode this week. But as you guys know, we're kind of flip-flopped as we're getting ready to launch into Season 12 in just two days on Sunday. This week's main episode was actually a live session Q&A, so we're doing things a little backwards. So this week's follow-up is an interview uh, with, with a guy named George Jarrett. George is a reporter who's been reporting on the West Memphis 3 case and has broke a ton of stories on the case all the way back from the days when the Rule 37 hearings first started back in 2008. George has a ton of stories about the case. He's got a lot of insight, uh, and he was nice enough to come on the show today just to, to chat about what he knows. And most specifically, he's telling us about kind of some inside knowledge about what he knows about what was going on with the testing of the DNA that we're dealing with right now. So after a short break, please welcome George Jared. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm joined today by George Jared. Who, uh, George, I've, I, I, I can't even imagine how many pieces that you've written that I've read without realizing it was you until uh, we we met over the phone la- last week. But uh, you have been covering the West Memphis Three case since. Well, I'll let you explain. How long? When did you start reporting on the West Memphis Three case, and what is your your connection to it? I started reporting on the West Memphis Three case in 2008. What happened was I was working for a newspaper in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and um, a couple months before I started reporting on it, we had this massive EF4 tornado that destroyed a big part of, like, a a couple of counties that were in the general vicinity of Jonesboro, and um, there was a rumor going around they had a big cleanup effort that Oprah was going to show up and do one of her, like, community giveaways. And so I used this as a ruse one day with my editor. So I, my daughter had a softball game in the same town where this was going to happen. And so I went to the softball game and Oprah didn't show up. But as I was sitting there, I got a text from my editor and she said, Hey, we're going to have a hearing in the West Memphis three case tomorrow. Can you cover it? And I was quite literally the fourth person in line to cover it. I covered a lot of crime stuff at the newspaper I worked at, but not this. The other three had other assignments that day, so I ended up covering a 20-minute hearing. And I'll I'll be honest with you, Bob, I could not remember even what the West Memphis Three was that day. Uh Like I had a friend, I had a friend sitting with me, and I said, "Hey, what's the West Memphis Three? And he's like, "I don't know." Well, I went home, did a little research, remembered I'd watched the first documentary, and I was like, "Okay, that's that case." Um, Went to court the next day. Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. were in there, and I'll never forget the first time I saw Jason. Uh, the first thought that ran through my head, I was like, wow, here is a notorious, you know, you know, child killer sitting right here. And um, the hearing was very brief. You know, Judge Burnett was like, hey, you know, I want to get this over with. It was, this was a kind of like a, a, 
a lead up to the Rule 37 hearings that would take place later in the summer. Mm-hmm. So, in, so you were you kind of got into the case right when really that that's about the time things really started heating heating up for their their defense to try to overturn their conviction. Absolutely, um, the you know the first prong, we're not the first prong, but a major prong of their their defense was the testing of the hairs. And of course, the one hair that was found in the, the ligature that bound Michael Moore, the results of that test came in 2007, just a few months actually before I was at this first hearing. And then, um, and I, at the time I didn't realize this, Bob, you know, um, I would hear names like Richard Suverin and Michael Bodden and Warner Spitz and Dr. Janice Ophoven had no idea that they were all going to come and testify for days on end. And there were days when I was literally the only reporter in the courtroom. Um, we were an Associated Press newspaper, so the Associated Press would just use the story that I would write and send it out all over, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so um, I got to sit in for all of that. Of course, I got to interview all those people, talk to them. And really, it was funny. Um, when I first started covering it, I thought, well, these guys have to be guilty because, you know, the prosecutor and the police, they can't get it this wrong, not on a case with three little kids being murdered like this that being such a famous case. But then I started talking to all these experts, and it really, really started to bother me because everything I was hearing in court was not making any sense at all compared to what happened in the original trial. So you start you started writing about – because a lot of the the world kind of got introduced to all this crazy new evidence. In the uh, when when West of Memphis, Amy Berg's West of Memphis came out, mm-hmm. but a lot of that you would you had already written a lot about a lot of that already prior to that, right? Oh yeah, I'd written about every bit of it. In fact, I met with Amy probably it was in the initial stages of her putting together. You know, she was trying to put together a game plan um, for her documentary, and I met with her probably two two and a half years before, and I met with her several times, but before the documentary ever came out. Um, we went through, um, you know, we went through lengthy sessions of just talking about each person. Um, I gave her some contact information that she needed for certain people and things like that. But yeah, I wrote about all that stuff well before any of the documentaries came out, the Paradise Lost Three Purgatory or West of Memphis. So who all, you've, you've had the pleasure or mispleasure in some cases of talking to, of personally speaking with a lot of people connected to the case. Can you kind of run through for us? Who all of you have you personally interviewed and met that's that's a part of this case? Um, to my knowledge, Bob, I've interviewed virtually everybody in the case, and I'm talking from the jury foreman who doesn't talk to anybody. He actually worked at one time worked out at the same gym I worked out at, so him and I had some very spirited conversations. I was the first person to report um, the whole thing with his that he had told his attorney. Uh, or told a, an attorney that he, you know, was he that he had introduced the Miss Kelly confession into the jury room, mm-hmm. and so him and I got into some, I'll just say, spirited arguments about that, which nearly led to other things. But uh-huh. yeah, I I interviewed Damien Eccles on death row in June of 2010. Obviously, I had lengthy conversations with all the attorneys, Dennis Reardon, Michael Burt, and then some of the local attorneys like Jeff Rosenswag and some of those. I've talked to Jason, Jesse in court, you know, like there would be a recess. I'd go and up, you know, they were, you know, handcuffed sitting there. I'd go and sit and talk to them at length. I mean, I talked to Jesse some, but, uh, you know, talking to him is, it's hard, you know, cause he's, mm-hmm. um, 
You know, it's just, I mean, I remember one time I was in court just trying to talk to him and the statement just came out of my mouth. I said, I just cannot believe that anybody would, would take a statement from this guy as credible evidence in a capital murder case. I just can't believe it. Right. Well, and, and, and professionals, experts in, in, the, in the subject matter have said the same thing. Like an initial assessment of him should have, should have let the officers know that this, you can't take a statement from this guy. He's not, he's not capable of doing it without being manipulated. Exactly. I talked to John Mark Byers, obviously quite a bit, which I know you've, you've chatted with him. Some. Mm-hmm. Terry Hobbs, I've interviewed him. I mean, I don't even know how many times I've actually interviewed Terry. I've talked to him on the phone a lot through the years. I've interviewed Pam, uh, Pam Hobbs. I, I mean, the only, I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking, I, I interviewed Jason, like Jason Baldwin had a teacher that testified one day at the Rule 37. I stopped her in the hallway and talked to her for a while. Um, I was there the day Victoria Hutchinson showed up in court. It, she was attempting to get on the stand and tell everybody that she lied about what she said during Jesse Miss Kelly Jr.'s, his, his trial. But, and I talked to her in the hallway before she was going to testify. I said, so what are you going to testify today to? And she said, and she looked at Jesse and she goes, you see that guy right there? And I said, yeah. She goes, I'm the reason that he sat in jail for, at that point, I think it had been 14 or 15 years. I can't remember the exact number. Mm-hmm. And she started crying. And um, I'll never forget when she came in the courtroom, I was sitting not too far from John Mark Byers. And he said, that's the, I'll just say B word that started all of this. He whispered it. Uh-huh. Of course, him whispering in a courtroom, like everybody heard him. <laughs> right. So, um, but then she got on the stand and they immediately called a recess because the prosecutor was like, well, she could be committing perjury now, or she could be, com- she may have committed perjury back then, but we can't tell because it was back then the statute of limitations passed. If not, she could be charged with perjury now. And I was like, and of course, everyone in the courtroom was like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like, and of course I said it, you know, out loud, I said, just give her immunity. Just give her immunity. That's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. And he could do that. And he did not. And she didn't testify. But of course, you know, they submitted a 109 page, I guess, dossier of her accounting of what happened. It's so ridiculous. You know, that, that tactic is, gets used. So whew, don't get me started on the, on the, uh, <laughs> the privileges of the prosecution. I, I've had a case. But I worked with the same thing, the Ed Eight's case and a guy named Kenny Snow who had falsely testified against him. Same thing, wrote an affidavit, went to court, was going to testify against him. And the prosecutor said the same thing, said, look, either you committed perjury then or you committed perjury now. We believed you then. So if you testify, we're going to we're going to charge you with aggravated perjury if that's a thing and scared him away and he wouldn't testify. That's so ridiculous. It, it really is. I mean, this case, I will say this. I really started to understand things about our judicial system, that their purpose, especially in these Rule 37s, it was not to seek, like, true justice in this. It was almost just like a pass-through. Like, hey, we're going to, you can bring all the experts, you can bring all the evidence in the world, you can say whatever you want to say, and it's not going to change anything. And that's exactly what happened. Right. The, you know, the only thing I think that really helped Damian, Jason, and Jesse walk out of there was just the fact that the, you know, people were so interested in the case that these documentaries were getting made and there was, they had funding to bring in those experts. And I don't think the prosecution ever saw that coming. No. Um, you know, when I talked to Damien on death row and then I talked to him again in 2017, he came back to Arkansas because 
they were going to do a series of executions. They were going to try to execute eight people in roughly two weeks right? because their their drug cocktail was running out. And Damien Eccles and Johnny Depp actually came back um, to a rally to try to stop the executions. And I talked to him then, and he said, you know, I would be one of these people. I would have been one of the eight executed. And he's right. He would have been. And when I was talking to him, I said, your life was literally saved by two things. The internet becoming public, and the Paradise Lost documentary. And he said, yes. He goes, there's no way I would have survived any of this without those two things. Yeah, he said the same thing to me many times. As he always puts it, he goes, people think our case is special. It's not special. He said, there's people all over. There's people in every prison in America that have been through the same shit we've been through. The difference is they started, they made a documentary about ours, and people know about it, and people helped us you know, fight the, you know, against all odds, fight the system. And even them, they're still, you know, they're still convicted murderers now, even, even though they're free, which kind of, well, a couple of things. So have you, I'm going to get to the process we've been going through now with the DNA and any, anything you know about that. But pr- prior to that, I want to b- back up and you've been, you've been in through this process, you're uh, connected to this case for all these years. Have you had much interactions with Scott Ellington? Um, I have. I, you know, obviously working as when I worked as a reporter at that at the newspaper in Jonesboro, I dealt with him on a, several cases, and actually covered his. Uh, actually covered some politics too at the time, and actually covered him when he ran for Congress. And you know, he has never publicly said that he thinks that these three guys are innocent, which he can't because if he said that, he's under prosecution. He, the obligation of his office would mean that he would have to seek a remedy for them being convicted of this case, technically. You know what I'm saying? Right, so, yeah. If he ever said it, he would open up a can of worms for him. Um, I've never had a private conversation with him. That is, And I have had private conversations with him about a lot of cases, but that's kind of a taboo subject. Um, I will say this, and I, I've said this before. I do give Scott some credit because, theoretically, these guys could have spent another couple years in prison. Um, Judge David Laser, who ultimately let them out of prison, he... I also, he also worked out at the gym that I work at, out at, and I've had conversations with him and it was very clear that these guys were going to get out. Mm-hmm. And Scott has publicly said, and I was there when he said it, um, he said that there's no way that they would be able to bring this case again into a courtroom if they had been let out. So I do give him some credit just for the simple fact that those guys didn't have to spend those extra couple of years. I mean, it could have, he could have gummed up the works more than he did. Um, and I think even one of Jason, I, I was at a panel discussion, um, after they got released and Scott showed up, you know, he was with the attorneys. Um, it was a, kind of a, a special thing. And even Jason Baldwin's attorneys were like, you know, Scott, he goes, you made this easier than it could have been. So I'll give him credit for that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give him credit for that, but at the same time, he also could have agreed to vacate the conviction and put an end to the, to the whole mess. So I'll give I'll give him I guess partial credit for it. You know, and that's one of the things that the you and I have had some run-ins with some of the same people over the years. Uh, <laughs> I think we've both been guests on the guest is a term used loosely on the what the hell's his name Ed Op, Opperman. Yes, the guy's always telling people to donate money because he can't afford heat in his office or whatever. Um, but, but you know, you you bring those guys on the and the first thing they want to they want to bring up is is well. The the Alford plea was the defense's idea. Of course, they're guilty because they're the ones that that proposed the Alford plea. 
you were there when all and I and I and I think that may be true, but you were there during that time. Like, what are your your feelings on how that whole process broke down? Was that was that the defense giving up, or the prosecution giving up, or the two just trying to get this thing over with? How did you feel about that process? Well, actually, I, I would kind of push back on it being a, a, the defense's idea because, I, as far as I'm aware, Patrick Benka, who was one of the defense attorneys in the case for Damian Eccles, he was eating lunch with the attorney general for the state of Arkansas at the time, Dustin McDaniel, and they were talking about the case, and Dustin is actually from Jonesboro, and his dad, I think, is, is an attorney as well. I think he might have had some minor uh, connection to the case during the original trials, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, they, from what I was told, they were eating lunch and they were trying to figure out a way to get the, this thing resolved because you got to remember at that time, it was August of 2011, the evidentiary hearing that had been ordered by the, the uh, Supreme Court um, was supposed to take place in December of that year. And I think that, you know, reading the tea leaves on both sides, they, were, they, they saw where this was matriculating towards. And so the two of them had a meeting. And they, I think it was mutually agreed it would be in everyone's best interest to find some way to adjudicate this, not just in real court, but in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. And so that's when the process started. And, you know, they they met with Scott Ellington because here's the thing. The attorney general can make suggestions. He doesn't have any power to do anything when it comes to a prosecutor. So they met with Scott. Scott was like he he said he was you know he he would he would definitely be agreeable I guess to to considering the possibility. Well, then finally, and and you probably know this, and I'm sure many of your listeners already know these details too. But you know, Damian Eccles finally they came to an agreement. Damian Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. agreed, but Jason Baldwin did not. Right. And I've talked I've talked to Jason about it. You know, he he told me he said no. He said I was going to stay. And, and as soon as I heard. There was a rumor going around that one of them had um, that would not agree to the deal. And as soon as I heard that, I knew it was Jason because I'd talked to him so many times. He was so defiant when it came to any aspect of this case. But one of his attorneys finally talked to him and said, "Hey, look, your friends on death row. You know, you need to you need to think about him more than yourself in this. And you guys just need to get out of prison. You've served enough time. And so that's when it all went down. So I would push back on it's a defense deal." And I was there in the courtroom when they gave their Alford pleas, and people need to understand what Alford means. An Alford plea is you are professing your innocence, but it's technically a no contest plea. And they gave their statements in court. And so I don't know how anybody could hang their hat on that, but I guess some people do. Well, that's the thing is they're always looking to that it's it's hard. You and I were talking a little bit off the air that I I I had said that. You know, I don't, I don't have, I don't take any issue at all with anybody that says, you know, I've looked at the case and I, I really feel like the three are guilty. I disagree with that, but I don't have an issue with that. But, but there are people that have the stance of, well, I've looked at all the evidence and I'm a hundred percent certain they're guilty and you're an idiot for thinking otherwise. I can't even relate to that thought, like how anybody could come to that. And it seems like the people that are in that camp are just looking for, especially now as time's going by and more and more is revealed, just, just look at just scratching away at anything they can hang their hat on. And so that's, that's their thing. And it, and that's the thing. That's the response to what I'm saying. Look, I don't know who did it. So let's test the evidence and find out. They're saying, well, why would you test the evidence when we know they're guilty because of the Alfred plea? 
Like, I'm sure you can see how silly that's. It doesn't make any sense. I, you know, Bob, this is what I want. Maybe some of your listeners could let us know. I want to know of one instance where a confirmed guilty person begged the court or the state to test more evidence in their case. Right. I just can't. I mean, I don't think you have to be a lawyer or a, an expert. Or I think that just good old common sense. If you've got a person who has been convicted of a crime, but they've essentially, quote unquote, gotten away with it because, you know, Damien, Jason and Jesse are not in prison. So they're they're free to go. You know, they're they're free now. And let's just say hypothetically, let's say they did it. Why would they push for new DNA testing? Because if you find their DNA, then the notoriety, you know, they built up. There's a there's a, a groundswell of people who support them. All of that, if, you, if they find their DNA on those clothes or those ligatures, they're all leaving. It's all over. They're gone. Yeah, it's over for them. Yeah, they become pariahs. And also there's another concept here, too, um, that I've written about before that I don't think people understand because there's, there's, the court of, there's the actual court and then there's the court of public opinion. And here's the thing. Is it possible that one of the three guys in the West Memphis Street case were involved in the murder? Let's just say murders. Hypothetically, let's just say Jesse was. Mm. Let's just say hypothetically. And let's say they found some DNA evidence of him on one item of these, of these clothing or ligatures. It wouldn't convict Damien and Jason in any court of law, but it would convict them in the court of public opinion. Right. And so that's also a calculation that I'm sure attorneys, and I actually wrote about this before they got released from prison, because one thing that just astounded me was every single time they had a chance to fight for testing, even when they were in prison, they fought for it. Mm-hmm. And even then, I was like, okay, why would a guilty person do that? I mean, you're winning this public, opi- this, this public opinion, you know, in the court of public opinion, you're winning there, and that's leading to money, that's leading to experts, that's leading to attorneys. So why would you do anything to jeopardize that dynamic? And they and there were actually other cases out there, and I can't name any off the top of my head, where there was around the country where some people were presumed innocent, but then this new DNA testing started coming around in the mid two thousands, and all of a sudden they started like, well, wait a minute, we don't want to test everything, right? And it's like, okay, why don't you want to test everything? And yeah, that's right, because you did it. Mm-hmm. And so, but they never did that. I mean, Damian Eccles' literal quote to me when I interviewed him on Death Row was, "Test every damn thing," and I was like, okay. Yeah, and, and there's there's so many. I mean, man, there's there's layers to this as far as what they have to lose here, yeah, and compared to what they have to gain. So it's not like you know if you try to put yourself in the mindset where one or all of them are guilty, they know they were there, and there it's not like they can think, well, if they test this, maybe we'll get lucky and they won't find my DNA in that spot, and that'll exonerate me. That won't you know the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, especially when it comes to post conviction work. If they test this and just don't find their DNA, that does nothing for them. So they're, they're, right. th- that's not a pro. That doesn't help. And then, as you said, if they find one person's D- – so like you said, say for example, let's say they just found some of Jesse's skin cells in one of those, one of those bindings. Well, they're not going back to prison, but like, as you said, in the court of public opinion, it's over. And any shot for – Damien will never be able to get an exoneration. When Jesse Miss Kelly, the guy who confessed and said he did it, when his DNA is found there, so that would that would that would kill everything for them. Or again, if they found you know when their when their defense is, 
I've never even been in those woods, then if, if any of their DNA is found there, they're screwed. So the only way this testing is of any benefit to them whatsoever is if they find the actual killer's DNA there. That's the only way that it helps them. And there's 50 different ways that it hurts them. And again, who's standing there driving the train to get this testing done is Damien and his team with Jason backing him up. I can't, I mean, I've spoken to Jesse about it, but like you said, that's Jesse's just like, yeah, go ahead. And then he went back to bed when I talked to him the last. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The last last time I was there. Um, But I just got the phone with, uh, I was just talking to Jason day before yesterday and they're just, they're all for it. But in the meantime, and I don't know how much I'll, I'll let you decide how much how much you want to share, but th- this process of testing the evidence, I know you've had some contact with, you know, Ellington. I don't know if you talked to Ellington during the beginning phases of this when we reached out to him, but I know you've been you know through this whole controversy that's happened in the last year. Talk to Cressman. So I'll let you share whatever you want to share about what you've seen unfold from the ground in Arkansas over this last year. Sure. So I was at a Kiwana, I got invited to a Kiwanis Club meeting, and I didn't even know that Keith Cressman was going to be speaking at this event. It was a noontime lunch. I showed up and he came in. And so, you know, obviously I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to talk to this guy for a minute. We talked about some other stuff, you know, not, nothing West Memphis 3 related at all. And at the very end, of, there were several reporters there who wanted to talk to him. Well, at the very end, everybody was getting ready to leave. And I said, hey, uh, one more question. I said, so um, are you going to allow for this, um, this advanced DNA testing in the West Memphis 3 case? And I could immediately tell that he didn't want to talk about it, which I understand. I mean, mm-hmm. they get a lot of phone calls, emails. I mean, you know, this has been going on. He's the third, I think the third prosecutor who's had this case now. And he's the one that told me, he said, no, he goes, if I, if, if I have the chance, I'm going to ask a judge to have the evidence destroyed because, you know, this, this nearly, you know, the, the probation period or whatever, that 10 year period that they were supposed to do whatever, um, was about to be up. And so he was going to ask for it to be destroyed. And I told him, I said, are you sure you want to destroy evidence in this case? I said, I get it. It's technically a second degree murder conviction at this point. And you don't keep evidence in cases like that after 10 years, you do destroy it. I said, but this case, I said, I just can't believe that you would want to do that. And he goes, well, that's what we're probably going to do. And so then we started down the odyssey of first the evidence had been destroyed in a fire. They couldn't find it. Well, then, of course, I'm sure you're aware several journals, I think Mara Lavert was one of them, who FOI'd all the fire records for all the, the buildings, the public buildings in West Memphis. Of course, there hadn't been a fire on one of those public buildings in 15 plus years. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't right. That was inaccurate. Well, then they said it was lost or they couldn't find it. Um, which was wrong. And then finally, when a judge ordered it, you know, his Damien's attorneys were able to go in to the evidence locker room there in West Memphis. And of course, lo and behold, sitting right there was all the evidence perfectly intact. And it probably most of that evidence had been sitting in that very spot since 1994. Mm-hmm. A few items had not like, I know that I can remember seeing the knife, you know, that ridiculous bogus knife thing that they found out behind Jason's house. Right. You know, which that's a whole nother story. But anyway, I remember that knife was in court a few times. So I know some of the evidence was brought back in, but not most of it had been sitting there. And of course the, you know, the police chief <laughs> resigns within a few minutes of all this stuff being found. And mm-hmm. of course they said it was all unrelated, but I mean, come on, really? I mean, right. so, I mean, 
I, the funny thing is, is like, you know, I'm not native to Arkansas. I moved here. Um, my wife's family's from here. So I'm originally from the West Coast. But I, I did know, I have noticed the sea change in this case from the time I started covering it to now. I mean, almost 100% of the people that I know around here are like, they will come up and ask me, like, what's going on? Why are they hiding this evidence? And um, I'm like, that's a good question. Why don't you call them and ask them? Right. You know, like what, you, what, what he said about about trying to destroy the evidence. I'm curious, Do you remember where that was at timing-wise among – so we had – first we had – and I don't know if you were aware of all this, but, you know, after our – I was filming my TV series in 2019 or uh, 20. Yeah. 2019. We started reaching out to Ellington telling him, mm-hmm. Hey, here's this new technology. We'd like to test the evidence. He's ghosting me. He's ghosting my producers. We get a hold of Damien's team, uh, lawyers and his lawyers start reaching out and he's ghosting them for a year. Then the show airs. There's this big call to action at the end. And um, and thousands and thousands of people take action and start writing and calling and emailing and blowing up, you know, just 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 driving him insane. Apparently, because within five days of that, Damien's attorneys reach back out and he says, "Okay, fine, I'll let you test the evidence." So that's now we're in spring of of twenty twenty pandemic time. Mm-hmm. But so Ellington tells us, "Yep, you can test the evidence." We go through. You know, six months of, oh, it's being packaged. I need an exact list of items. Tell me the FedEx account number for the lab so we can get it sent. And then poof, he disappears and then moves on to his judgeship. Then Cressman takes over. And then, you know, his lawyers go back to Cressman. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I want to find the truth as much as anybody. So let's, I have no problem testing the evidence. And then he starts ghosting them. And then all of a sudden, we read about, and it may be an article you wrote, I don't know, but we read about in the, in the paper that he mm-hmm. says it's lost. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, that was in April of 2021. He got appointed, I believe, in January or February, right before that. He'd only been mm-hmm. a prosecutor. It might, it might have been later than that. It might have been as late as March 2021 Then he got appointed by the governor. And the thing about his appointment is he can't run for that office. So he's, he's just a placeholder now for the most part mm-hmm. until they elect a new prosecutor. So, um, I haven't talked, I, I reached out to, to his office after, um, Damien Eccles had filed his motion, um, to have it retested. And then when they filed their motion trying to fight it, which I just, I don't understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I, my honest, what I honestly thought, and I told people this at the time, I said, well, what will happen is I think Damien Eccles will file his petition with the court. The prosecutor won't file anything, he'll, and he'll just let the judge decide. And then the judge will probably, in all reality, the judge will say, okay, since the prosecutor hasn't filed anything, we'll just go ahead and let this testing you know, commence. That's what I thought was going to happen, too. Yeah. I mean, that, that is literally what I was telling people. I said that's the only logical course of action right now, because how in the world can a, the prosecutor's office not want this stuff to be tested after allowing DNA testing to happen several other times in this very case. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know all the particulars, but I, I just assumed at this point that probably as far as the cost of having this stuff done, that, that there would be ways to pay for that, that the state wouldn't have to worry about any of that, that part of the dynamic. So 
Yeah, I was very shocked. So I called his office, and, of course, he wasn't talking to anybody that day. So I was like, okay. But they gave me a statement, and I just went with that. Did uh, Have you had a chance to read Damien's attorney's re- reply to his reply yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that stuff pretty regularly. That um, was sent to me. That was <laughs> yeah. That was my uh, our main episode on Sunday. Would be breaking that down, and that's I don't know any other way. It's probably not PC to say it this way anymore. But it, what a bitch slap of a reply back to, back back to Cressman. I mean, th- my favorite quote in the whole thing is says it's interesting that after be, having to be educated by Damien's defense attorneys about evidence preservation. He now claims that he needs to preserve the evidence. Yeah. You know, because the the only reason that we are even here is because Damien had to file a lawsuit. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you an ironic twist to that. It could be an ironic twist. We don't know yet. Um, There's another pretty famous case out of Arkansas right now, the Rebecca Gould murder case, where they arrested a guy um, last in, in November of 2020. And we don't know for a fact but we suspect very strongly based on good evidence, and I've covered that case for 17 years, that they were able to catch this guy because they did some MVAC DNA testing on her shirt that was on her body when she was found. And so literally in the same week that I'm getting stuff leaked to me that it, that it was MVAC that probably led them to this killer. In Arkansas. In case, in Arkansas, Jesus and Christ. It's probably, yeah, I mean, and then you get this, where, where like, their unreliability of MVAC, and I was like, I was so furious when I read that, that I actually went and, and pulled, you know, the FBI did a very, and you know more about MVAC than I'll ever dream of knowing, but you know the FBI, they did a, they did a report um, in 2021 saying that this was better than swabbing. I mean... <laughs> That's the FBI. I mean, and they did an 18 month study on it. And I'm just sitting there going, how the world can this? I mean, they were making it sound like this was like witch doctoring or something. So, well, the, the sad part is that study was cited in Damien's original motion. Right. <laughs> they gave him a fucking link to it. And he's like, I just did some research and I don't know what this stuff is. Like, did you read the motion? It was all in there. Oh, it's yeah, unbelievable. I. Mean, I I, you know, the funny thing is, is that like, I just, this case, nothing ever shocked me anymore in this case. No, it's, it's hard to. And that's so, I, I guess let me back up the timeline. So we have, so we know in February or March is when Cressman told Damien's team that he really didn't have a problem testing the evidence. Let's get together and do this. Then in April is when he said the evidence was lost. Where in that mm-hmm. time frame did did he say, did you hear him say or did he say to you that he wants to file a motion with the judge to destroy it? It was in April. Um, I don't know the exact date, but it was in April of 2021. In fact, I can I can I'll text you that later the exact date. But um, yeah, I know for a fact it was in April of 2021. So in the same time frame that he's telling Damien's team the evidence is gone, we don't have it. Don't know where it is. Maybe it's burned in a fire. He's also planning to file a motion to destroy it. And, we, of course, we now know they absolutely knew where it was the whole time. It was, you know, in the evidence room where you keep evidence. Um, <laughs> like the last place you'd look, right? Right. Oh, shit. I didn't think to look in the evidence room. For we, were, we were looking in the shed out back. Oh, God. Yeah, it's just so unbelievable that, you know, they that he's so he's still, you know, he's he's planning 
He's actively trying to come up with a plan to destroy the evidence while at the same time pretending like he doesn't know where it is, which sounds to me, because you were talking about that 10-year time limit thing, because that ended in August. It sounds to me like the whole I can't – now it makes sense to me. I can't find the evidence was probably him trying to buy time to get past that 10-year mark. The only thing that makes sense to me. Because the whole time we're like, why would he – he couldn't possibly have thought that he could – what do you think, that we're just going to go away? Like, oh, you lost it? Well, that's a bummer. I guess we'll just move on. But it makes sense. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it makes sense, though, if if what he was saying was after the 10 years, then he can order a judge to destroy it. So it's kind of like I just got to buy myself, what was it, April? So I got to buy myself four months, and then the 10 years are up, and I can get a judge to let me to destroy it then. Right. Well, and, uh, you know, and, and not to get into the technical weeds, I don't know just the fact that Damien had asked for this testing to be done. Um, I, I would, I would hope that even if the 10 year mark had passed, that that would be enough to give any judge pause, you know, before they just summarily said, okay, it's 10 years. Who cares what's going on? Just throw that stuff in the incinerator, which again, I could not believe when I read in that filing. And I know you went over this with your, <laughs> with all your listeners before, but when they said that they were worried that the MVAC testing could manipulate the evidence in a way that could make it to where it couldn't be tested in the future. And I'm sitting there going, but you guys wanted to throw it into an incinerator. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that would do more to manipulate the evidence than throwing it in a solution for an MVAC testing. I mean, come on. It's it's bananas. No, we can't possibly test this because it could alter the evidence. What we need to do is light it on fire. That's that'd be better, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy, and there was, you know they've got this timeliness argument. Damien seemed to even make the argument. Maybe it's not a good legal argument, but for me as a layman, when they were arguing the the timeliness factor, I thought, well, that's pretty easy. Up until two months ago, you told us the evidence was gone. So how could we possibly have tested it when we didn't know it existed until last month? You know, like, actually, actually, Bob, I think that's a pretty decent argument, even from a legal perspective. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what the hell? Like, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. This is anyway. I, I just, I really hope that the the testing gets done. You know, I, I certainly have opinions about the case. I'm sure you do too. I think we both agree that uh, you know what, I, George, I may rope you into something. So this may be better for an off air conversation. But I had uh, somebody reach out to me. And ask me to to be on a, a like a roundtable debate type thing about this case with uh, William Ramsey, who are the other names, Gary Meese, someone named Roberta, something or other. They're all three guilty people, or or guilt like believe the three are guilty. They want me to sit on, uh, they virtually sit in like a roundtable and discuss the case with a moderator. And it just occurred to me, it sure would be nice to have somebody on my team. If you're interested, I... I I'm a, yeah, I'm 100% interested. I'd love to talk to Gary Meath. I've, uh, we, have, we, we actually know a mutual person. I've read some of his books, and some of the lies that were put in those are absolutely outrageous. Nice. Well, I will, uh, I'm going to throw your name in the, in the ring then, because like he's, he told me William Ramsey. I'm like, well, that guy hates me and everything I stand for. This, this will be fun, sure. And then he was like piling these other, I'm like, really? Like, is there, you couldn't find anybody else that hated me a little more than, than these people? Like, 
And I don't have a problem with a spirit of debate, but let's level the playing field a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to throw your, your, your hat in the ring for that. Uh, we're going to continue, continue tracking this case as it moves forward. But you know, I appreciate all the, like I said, I, I, I wish I'd given you credit for all the, I've read probably everything you've written about this case. And I just, you know, you could, <laughs> the old newspaper, I never read the byline to know who, who wrote everything. But you've been breaking breaking stories on the West Memphis three case since since the mid two thousands, and you've been doing a great job. And I assume you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna keep pace with whatever with everything that's happening now. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the thing about it is, like when I wrote for the Associated Press, a lot of times I don't even give a byline, so it wouldn't be anything. And you know, it's funny. Like I, I when uh, Bruce Sanofsky and Joe Berlinger would come into town. And I would always go and talk with them and do interviews with them. And actually, they interviewed me for one of their documentaries one time. And I would always talk to them because I was curious as to why they would always talk to me, because there's a lot of reporters who covered this. And they told me that I had written more stories about this case than anyone in the world. And I never knew that. And I looked it up, and it was I probably had written twice as many as the next closest person. Wow. Well, you, well, you yeah. definitely are, are an absolute wealth of knowledge about the case. And, and what, what I found you know, super appealing about when I was talking to you last week is that you actually, you know, all the facts of the case, not just talking points. You know, there's the talking points for the supporters and for the nons, but you've actually read the case. You know, every little detail about it. And, uh, and it's, you can actually have an intelligent conversation about it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I sat in the courtroom pretty much, you know, the funny thing is about rule 37, Bob, is that they basically have to regurgitate everything that happened in the original trial, all the original statements, all the evidence, and then they move forward with the new experts, new testimony. Uh, the Rule 37 actually lasted probably four or five times longer than the original trial. So you got to hear everything and then some. Oh, yeah. I mean, when Dr. Bodden came in, uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, I mean, I, he was there probably for two full days of his testimony, which, and I know you've probably gone over this with in, in a previous episode, but... You know, it was so funny because he got up there and was talking about the turtle bite mark evidence. And Dr. Frank Peretti, who is the, you know, state medical examiner um, who testified for the state, which technically he's not supposed to. He's just supposed to testify in the case. Mm -hmm. But he raises turtles for a living, and he was trying to refute that a lot of the bite marks were turtle marks. And it was clearly obvious that these were turtle bite marks. And at one point, the prosecutor jumps up and says, well, Judge, we don't even know that there's there were any turtles in those woods. And they call the recess. <laughs> One of, uh, I think it was Jason's attorney goes and talks to John Mark Byers. He goes, okay, we want to put John Mark Byers on the stand. John Mark Byers goes to the stand, and he goes, um, so, John, did you ever see turtles out there? He goes, yeah. And he goes, what about the hill next to the creek? What's that called? He goes, Turtle Hill. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> Must be a coincidence. It must be. That that is absolutely incredible. Well, I I do want to thank you too. I don't want to give the details away yet, but uh, my listeners know that I'm going to be doing a couple presentations about the West Memphis Three case at CrimeCon, and that's kind of how we got hooked up. Is uh, George was actually interviewing someone uh, ahead of time that we're going to, I can't break it all down, but he was, he, he was doing some work for some of the presentations that we're going to be doing. And I, and I think we may even have you on stage with us when we get to crime con. I think, I think Kevin was talking about that. Did he mention that to you or, or am I surprising you with it now? Uh, no, he actually mentioned it to me and I told him whatever you guys need me to do, I'll do. I'm going to be there, uh, actually presenting on another case as well. And 
But I always love stopping and talking about the West Memphis Three for a few minutes, no matter who it's with. Well, that sounds great. And, and either way, I'm looking forward to, to meeting you in person in Vegas in, in just a few weeks. Absolutely, Bob. Thanks for having me on today. I very much appreciate it. Yep, thanks for coming. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus, terms apply.